I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And And this this is is Hashtag Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. This is Hashtag History episode 19. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And I'm Kelly. Yes, we have (laughs) Kelly Boyles from Milk House Shakes back on the podcast today. If you guys will recall, we had her on episode 10, our season finale for season one, to talk about the Teapot Dome scandal. We are so happy and so excited to have Kelly back on. For anyone that has not listened to episode 10 and or has since forgotten, Kelly, why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself and what Milk House Shakes is? Well, hi. I'm so happy that you guys um, invited me back for the season two finale. Um, I'm sensing a finale theme. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But for those wondering, I'm Kelly. I own a milkshake and coffee shop in Old Sacramento. Um, All of our shakes are named after U.S. presidents. Our logo is Abe Lincoln, so you could say I have a deep fascination with presidents. Um, And although these next two episodes are, you know, sad, um, I'm really happy to be here to talk about. (laughs) We're super happy to have you. So we said it in last week's episode, but this week's episode is part one of a two-part season finale, and we had to go out with a banger. I am beyond ecstatic to dive into the JFK assassination. I have been obsessed with the JFK assassination since pretty much forever. Mm -hmm. Back in the day before the internet was what it is today, the way that you got your information was the library. (laughs) You were only allowed to borrow 30 books at a time, and I would drive my mom nuts because I would borrow all the way up to the 30-book threshold (gasps) every time. Like, full stack had to bring, like, tote bags with me to the library. You both are looking at me like I'm crazy. (laughs) Ask my mom. It's a true story. And even as a kid, 90% of those books were about presidential assassinations because I'm a weirdo. You must have been a weird kid. I was cool. No, I I was a closet (laughs) nerd. Have you ever read, and this is kind of off topic, but have you ever read um, uh, Assassination Vacation? No. So I started reading it. I have not finished it. It's a true story. This um, journalist goes on kind of like a tour of all these places where presidents were assassinated. She goes to Gettysburg, um, for Lincoln. Yeah. So I actually, I put it down because I was reading something else. So I need to pick it back up. But it's about presidential assassinations. I am all over it. it. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm all over that. One of the coolest things um, in my entire life that I've ever done for my 16th birthday, the California History Museum brought a bunch of the exhibits from Ford's Theater to California, to the museum. My mom took me for my 16th birthday. That's so weird, but we went. I love it. And I pretty much had like a heart attack because I could see Lincoln's top hat that had like the blood on it and everything. Yes. So cool. So guys, I'm a nerd. (laughs) All this is to say though, that there is so much to cover about the JFK assassination from who John Kennedy was as a person the whole story behind the trip to Texas, who Lee Harvey Oswald was, the facts as we know them, the conspiracy theories, grassy knoll, magic bullet, anybody? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This case is never ending. 
But praise God for a two-part episode. I'm confident that between the three of us here, you will learn at least one thing you did not previously know about John F. Kennedy's assassination. Unless you're a nerd like Rachel. Yeah, and then none of this is new. (laughs) But before we do that, Leah has prepared some lovely drinks for us. Yes, I sure did. Usually, we record separately, unfortunately, pretty often, but this time we actually get to record together, and so I actually got to make Rachel the Yes, so I liked excited. it. <laughs> From now on, can you come over at least to, like, make the drink for yeah. me? <laughs> <laughs> but um, according to Will Weber, President John F. Kennedy drank various cocktails such as Bloody Marys, which were his favorite. Gross. Gross. Well, so actually, gross. I, I, they've kind of grown on me. Then I have a, a Bloody Mary mix in the cabinet that I'm going to give you okay. before you leave. I want to like them. Like, I want to like with a big thing of bacon. A celery. Like, and, but I oh. just... I, I think a lot of it is like I just can't get past it. Tomato. Oh, I tomato love tomatoes. Yeah. I love tomatoes. you don't like about it? If the, the it... The texture is thicker and stuff. Um, I don't like it. Your drink shouldn't taste like a smoothie or feel like a smoothie. Unless it's Especially like, if it's peppery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyways, um, <laughs> this week we're actually going to dive into another drink that he liked, the daiquiri. Mm-hmm. So now I recently learned from our friends at Beyond Reproach, um, another podcast that dives into histories, um, conspiracy theories, that kind of thing. I learned from them that daiquiris weren't always the blended strawberry flavored drinks we know and love today that's a bummer (laughs) in fact daiquiris were actually invented in cuba in the early 1900s and eventually became a hit in the u.s in the 1940s when vodka and whiskey were hard to come by so the daiquiri's use of rum was ideal so it actually to make the drink you actually just mix about one and a half ounces of white rum five sixths ounces of lime juice, half an ounce of simple syrup, and then you shake over ice and pour into a martini glass. We don't have martini glasses, so it seems like a very small amount, so I might have made us double. <laughs> I might have doubled the recipe. Yeah, which since this is rum, that's okay with me. Yeah, that's fine. I like rum. <laughs> um, there's a lot more interesting facts about the daiquiri and its history and its connection to JFK, but instead of just totally copying Beyond Reproach, I'm going to recommend you guys go and listen to episode 15 of their podcast because I'd literally just be copying what they were saying verbatim and that's not cool. (laughs) So go check them out guys. They're another um, history podcast like Leah said. They're pretty cool. Pretty cool. Want to try it? Yeah. I mean we might have already had this. Yeah we might have cheated. (laughs) Rachel doesn't like it. It's fine. It's so good. It's fine. All right. That's it doesn't taste like a strawberry daiquiri no. at all. No, it doesn't. When you said we were doing daiquiris, I was like, hey, <laughs> this is not what I was expecting. Sorry. All right, guys. So I am officially a broken record. Between the Chappaquiddick episodes about Ted Kennedy and last week's episode about Robert Kennedy, you guys can probably recite the Kennedy family situation by heart. Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., he was a tough guy to have as your dad because he put a lot of pressure on his kids to be successful in business and politics. 
We know that he set his sights primarily on his eldest son, Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., but this son sadly passed away during World War II. Next in line was John F. Kennedy. So let's talk a little bit about John's background. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was born on May 29, 1917. Similar to his younger brothers, Robert and Ted, he was not exactly a star student. In fact, he was a prankster, so much so that he nearly got kicked out of his fancy boarding school. He and his buddies had a little club whose sole purpose was to play pranks around the school, one of which was exploding a toilet at the school with a firecracker. It kind of reminds me of um, Harry Potter, like the yeah. Weasley Brothers. Like, that would be a Yes, yeah. yes. I, I love Harry Potter references. <laughs> <laughs> Something super cool. Um, a new-ish museum in Boston called the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum has pages from a scrapbook that Kennedy kept when he was in high school where he documented some of his ridiculous pranks. This scrapbook had never before been revealed prior to the museum opening in 2017. So, you know... Just add that museum to the bucket list. Mm-hmm. And I've actually been dying to go to that museum. Um, and I actually have a friend who I met through the shop. Like, she came in and stuff and became friends. And she sent me a postcard from the shop there this summer. So oh, that's, that's cool. so cool. Um, but I've heard it's amazing. Oh. It's so amazing. I actually subscribed to their emails. They're, oh, they're God, that's so like, nerdy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you follow them on, like, Instagram or something, I which also would be good. <laughs> <I touch them. laughs> Like, but now I'm thinking, like, I, I need to do that. Yeah, yeah. And I get all the, oh, I guess, like, these new exhibits come to the museum. Oh. And, like, people coming to speak. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I want to go. And I have to remind myself, like, I don't live there. <laughs> can't you can't go. just go. Like, oh, my God. That would be amazing. Although being a poor student is something that John had in common with his brothers, there was one thing that really set him apart. From a very early age, Kennedy massively struggled with health issues. And this, for a long time, was considered one of America's best-kept secrets. We know a lot now about his health struggles, but during his lifetime, very few people did. It was a top secret because, I mean, can you imagine if people had known that this was a man that wore a back brace nearly 24-7 and was likely doping up on illegal pills to subside constant pain? What would people have thought of him? Would he have become president? I mean, it's really... Kind of amazing to think of how his health struggles, you know, transformed his life and where he ended up and how he was who he was. Um, and it's been said that he had stashes of medication throughout the world because, you know, they traveled all the time, mm-hmm. um, even before he was president. Um, and I'm not actually entirely sure how accurate that is, but he really did have such poor health and he was administered the last right um, three to four times before he actually, the final last right. Oh my died. God. I so, didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. I do know um, during his presidential campaign, um, he had, like, a guy, it it was a staff aide that, like, came with him to all of his places that he was speaking throughout the country during his 1960 presidential campaign, and that aide was, like, kind of disguised as just, like, another staffer, but he was actually, like, a medical aide, and he kept um, a bag full of medicine with him at all times, and when... Kennedy was in Connecticut speaking. Somehow the guy misplaced the bag somewhere. And it was such a big deal that Kennedy called the governor of Connecticut and said, like, there's a bag of medicine missing. If this isn't found, like, shit's going to hit the fan pretty much. So that's like, and that's a true story. And the bag ended up being found. But that shows, like, how much Kennedy was concerned about his image and his reputation. That if someone finds that the president had this bag of medicine... 
what would the public think of him? And that poor staffer, like, you have one job. Oh. And you messed it up. You lost the bag. <laughs> oh, my God. That would be, oh, my. Could you imagine? Sweating bullets. Just thinking about it. Like, oh, yeah, starting to sweat a little bit. Like, oh. I love that the, like, empathist in you, that, that was, like, the first thing. You that poor staffer. Yeah. <laughs> At only three months old, Kennedy contracted scarlet fever. For the next several childhood years, he would continue to experience significant ailments such as bronchitis, chickenpox, and even had his appendix removed when he was only 13 years old. For about a year or so following the appendectomy, a procedure they had hoped would cure Kennedy of his many health complaints, he continued to feel fatigue, abdominal pains, and to continue to lose weight. By 1934, when he was just 17 years old, he was rushed to the emergency room where doctors actually believed he might have leukemia. They finally determined that he had colitis, which is a digestive disease where you have inflammation in your colon. He actually wrote to a friend of his at this time saying, quote, I've got something wrong with my intestines. In other words, I shit blood. Ooh. Awful. It's kind of amazing to think that he was um, accepted into the Navy. Yes. Oh, I mean, anything but all this. Mm-hmm. Like, as I'm thinking about it now, like, yes, wow. some red flags there. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> God. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> By 1947, when Kennedy was just 30 years old, he was diagnosed with Addison's disease. Addison's is an adrenal disease in which your body isn't producing enough hormones, leading to symptoms like weight loss, nausea, diarrhea, various aches and pains throughout your body, and more. Due to Kennedy's stature, he was able to obtain a steroid, a very recently developed steroid known as DACA. This is the acronym for it because the actual word for the steroid is about as long as supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. You don't want to give it a try? No, I I don't want to give it a try. I have not even the slightest idea how to pronounce it. (laughs) It wasn't always easy for Kennedy to get his prescriptions filled for the steroid since it was so controversial. But the DACA allowed for the reduction of tissue inflammation, which obviously greatly benefited Kennedy. How DACA is administered is pretty disgusting. One of Kennedy's friends actually watched him administer DACA on himself once by cutting away the top layer of skin with a small knife, being sure not to draw blood, placing the DACA pellet just under the skin, and then bandaging it up. The idea was that the pellet would then dissolve as a result of body temperature and be spread into the bloodstream. Like, why not just shoot it in? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the difference? I, I don't know the answer. Okay. I, just, but can you imagine, like, the scars that he must have had on his body? Like, little scar, like, you just cut yourself and then put a Band-Aid on it? Yeah. That, that's crazy to me. Now, why have I gone into so much detail about Kennedy's medical condition? One, because it is fascinating, and I could literally spend an entire episode talking about just that, as I have only covered maybe 20% of his medical history here. But two, because of this right here, this part, it's super important to the story of his assassination. While DACA did allow for some immediate relief, the long-term side effects were horrible. The primary side effects that would specifically affect Kennedy was a decreased immune system and osteoporosis. By 1950, Kennedy's lumbar had all but collapsed, providing no support for the rest of his spine. What the public didn't see along the campaign trail was that Kennedy actually had to use crutches to get up and down stairs and had to have other people help him put his socks and shoes on. 
A surgery was suggested to Kennedy that would fuse his vertebrae together and hopefully provide him with greater back support. Doctors were hesitant to perform such a procedure on someone with Addison's, though, because the risk of infection during the surgery process was great. Kennedy was determined to have the surgery, though, despite his family's concerns. In 1944, Kennedy had the surgery in which they inserted metal plates into his spine. Sadly, although the surgery itself appeared to go successfully, Kennedy would end up having the plates removed just a year later because he had contracted an infection that nearly killed him. Keep in mind that removing these plates meant removing screws that had been drilled through bone. He could not bend forward or backward on his own, and he wore a back brace nearly all the time, which further impeded his mobility. So that right there is so important. He wore a back brace nearly all the time. If you hear nothing else from this part, remember that right there. Okay, so I'll stop going on and on about his medical condition, although I could say so much more, such as the fact that he was actually hospitalized several times while on the campaign trail, and the public never knew this. He was taking up to eight pills a day at times to control his weight, suppress diarrhea, relieve back pain and ulcer pain, and so much more. It's believed that the only people that ever knew the full extent of Kennedy's health struggles during his lifetime were his father, wife, brother Robert, and his doctors. Okay, so we have to skip way ahead if we're ever going to get to the actual assassination. So let's talk about Kennedy becoming president and why that made such an impact on America. For one, Kennedy was the youngest man to ever become president. He became president at 43 years old, which, I mean, that's a big deal. The average age of a president is late 50s. In our current 2020 presidential candidates, the oldest is 79 years old. Which, can we just talk about, like, that seems crazy to me. Like, when I think of an 80-year-old, I don't think, like... No, it is crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. Like, oh. It's crazy. Yeah, okay. We'll just leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kennedy being so young... I hope I'm that spry. But he's, like, not. Like, he's having health issues. So, (laughs) Kennedy being so young, having a beautiful young wife and beautiful young children was something new and something really attractive to the American public. Kennedy's youth, because, remember, the public did not know that he had the health of a 150-year-old man, embodied change and hope and ambition. He inspired people. The Kennedy family inspired people. On November 29, 1963, just four days after JFK's funeral, Jackie Kennedy invited Life magazine into her home for an interview in which she worked to preserve the magical legacy of John. She made a direct quote to Camelot the musical in which she stated during the interview, don't let it be forgot that for one brief shining moment, there was Camelot. She turned the Kennedy presidency into a fictional mystical place called Camelot where the good King Arthur, or John F. Kennedy in this case, ruled over the land and all was well and magical and good. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to note um, how tight-knit and insular the Kennedys were and how that played into the public perception of the family, um, and especially after Jack's death. And um, I think Jackie quoting Camelot was intentional, Yeah, and she clearly wanted to kind of direct the story of who JFK was and how he would be remembered. So I think even today, I'm willing to bet most people, especially our generation and like the younger generation, Mm -hmm. um, can't really name much about what Kennedy did as president or what he accomplished or what he stood for. Um, But I think most would consider him Mm well-loved. And um, 
I mean, there's no denying that his glamour, and like you mentioned, the youth and the class and the, that he brought to the White House, um, in large part, Jackie helped construct that, um, obviously made a huge lasting impact. And I yeah. Think, Jackie was a huge contributor to the allure of the Kennedys. She was stunning, intelligent, and an absolute fashion icon in America during the 60s. One thing in particular that she did was on Valentine's Day 1962, she gave the American public a tour of the White House, which was the first ever First Lady televised tour of the White House. This program was viewed by 80 million people. You can find the hour-long program on YouTube, and I highly recommend you guys check it out. Jackie Kennedy is absolutely enchanting. She would have only been 32 years old when this program was broadcast, and I mean, let's be real, 32 <laughs> isn't too far away from me now, <laughs> but the level of poise and beauty and knowledge and class that she portrays in this recording is it's mind blowing, and I am completely obsessed with her. Have you watched the um, the Natalie no, Portman? No, I knew you were going to say that. Okay. No, I haven't watched it. Okay. You have? No, I haven't. But I like watched a behind the scenes thing about it, and like she went deep into really? it. Really? Have you seen it? I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. And like it's she, good. It's like kind of scary. It was kind. It is kind of scary. Like how how much she is like like the the, the mannerisms, the inflection. Because um, Jackie has a very distinct voice. I remember when I first heard it. It was kind of like, oh, like, yeah. It doesn't of, sound like it. Like it would. It's, it's very, not what you expect of, to uh, come from her. Uh huh. Kind of, um, yeah. But yeah, when you think about, it, she's only thirty-two. That's crazy. I didn't realize. You know, that. yes, how, a baby. Well, much, I'm referring to myself. <laughs> a baby. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Um, like how much pressure was on her? Mm-hmm. How many eyes were on her? And you know, pressure from his family. It yes. is honestly mind blowing that she could hold it together, and she was so poised. And yeah. And fun fact, too, I just want to add this in because it is Christmas time. It is because of her that we do have a themed White House Christmas tree. Yes. She was the very first first lady to um, give the White House tree a theme. Mm -hmm. I love it. So That's so cool. And she was instrumental in renovating the White House, Mm -hmm. too. A lot of the stuff that's there now is because of her. Mm -hmm. So it's just such a freaking cool person. Um, I've uploaded a picture of the Kennedys on their wedding day. And can we just talk about how picture perfect they are yeah yeah I mean, they, are, I mean, they are an attractive couple it's yeah just, yeah and i've i've seen other um snapshots from the wedding as well which are just as, as adorable just as cute they're just they're really a mm-hmm. nice looking couple yeah i had a hard time picking a picture because i was like and that one's cute and that one's yeah. cute and that one's cute yeah John F. Kennedy was also the first and only Catholic president, which represented over 20% of the American population that identified as Catholic in the 1960s. In June of 1963, Kennedy, his vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, and Texas governor, John Connolly, had a meeting in which it was agreed that Kennedy would come to Texas for a presidential visit. Kennedy had very specific goals in mind for this trip. One, of course, was campaigning for his re-election the following year in 1964, but the other was to resolve issues between Texas Democratic leaders who were having somewhat of a civil war with one another ever since the 1960 victory of the Kennedy-Johnson election. Johnson had been a U.S. senator from Texas when he had been chosen to run on the presidential ticket alongside Kennedy, so there was belief that there had been some kind of voting fraud going on. Texas holds a huge number of electoral votes, so it's super important for that to win that state in terms of winning the presidency. 
Kennedy's trip to Dallas, Texas was officially publicly announced in September of 1963, and the exact details of his trip were then publicly announced on November 18th. Kennedy was to ride with Texas Governor John Connolly for a luncheon at the Dallas Trade Mart, which was not like a supermarket where they were going to eat deli sandwiches in the break room, which was my first thought. Yeah. The Trade Mart was a venue in Dallas. Kennedy flew into the Dallas Love Field Airport, where he landed at 11.38 a.m. and was then to take a very public 45-minute drive to the trademark. I Google mapped the distance between the airport and the venue, and it's an under 15-minute drive. So the fact that they allotted 45 minutes for this drive shows you that their intent was to drive very slowly so that the public could see Kennedy as he slowly crept along in the motorcade. Which, I mean, like, today... And it's because of this that would never, no, never, no, never fly. That's not a thing. Like that would never happen. That's not a thing. Actually, in like half a second, I'm going to talk about like in contrast the type of security detail there was then versus now. Mm -hmm. And even when we talk about the Warren Commission later on, part of the report is that they they give like recommendations, Mm -hmm. and one of them was on like security detail. Yeah, because that is like. No, this is nuts. Like, this is not a thing. You would never, ever, ever. You don't even see, like, not even at the president level, we don't even see, like, our governor or our mayor or anything driving around. Meryl Streep. Like, big celebrities. No. Just. Yeah, in an open vehicle. Mm -mm. No. As I'm sure you can imagine, this trip was heavily planned out and thought through. Secret Service agents actually drove the route in the weeks beforehand, planning out each and every turn the motorcade would make. This route would take the motorcade through a suburban area and through downtown along Main Street, allowing for the greatest access for the public. When this route was officially decided upon, it was published in newspapers all over Dallas so that people could plan accordingly to make sure they could see the president when he passed by. The Secret Service protection for the president that day was an unmarked Ford in front containing four officers, two officers in the 1961 Lincoln convertible that Kennedy and his wife and Governor Connolly and his wife were seated in, and a third car tailing behind with another 11 officers. And no, this wasn't like a clown car. Five of those agents were riding on the running boards of the car. And then there were a bunch of other officers riding alongside them on motorcycles. I'd like to, the reason I added that is because when I did my research, they didn't say anything about the running boards. They said there were 11 officers in the vehicle behind them. And I was like, okay, something about this is not correct. Yeah, what, it, what was it? <laughs> Kennedy arrived at Lovefield Airport at about 11.25 a.m. on November 22nd, 1963. At about 11.40 a.m., the motorcade left the airport and began its route through Dallas. Everything ended up taking longer than they had originally anticipated due to the heavy crowds. There was estimated to be over 150,000 people there to see the president and his wife. Finally, they reached Dealey Plaza, which was only four miles from the final destination of the Dallas Trademark. Kennedy's vehicle was completely open. So this is what we were just talking about. It This car has since been given the name of the death car or suicide car because of the absolutely minimal protection that it provided the president, governor, and their wives. This was intentional and was a decision made by Kennedy himself. The car did have a bubble top that could be placed on it, which was not bulletproof, FYI, even though some reported otherwise. Mm-hmm. But Kennedy, seeing that the weather permitted, requested that the bubble top not be placed on the car so that he could be closer and more visible to spectators. 
In contrast to this 1961 vehicle that provided zero protection to Kennedy, Obama's limousine weighed 15,000 pounds, and it was completely bulletproof, bombproof, carried multiple guns, oxygen tanks, and even vials of Obama's own AB-negative type blood. So if you guys have what? seen the Marvel movies... Oh, no. Oh, no. I thought you were going to say, if you've seen that really cool documentary on History oh, Channel. No. <laughs> I told you, I'm a different type of nerd. I'm a different type of nerd. Because I got this from a documentary. Yeah, I anyway. was about to reference Marvel. Please do. No, I it's just Nick Fury's vehicle in the war movie okay hopefully wow. someone knows do you know oh i no thor i mean I'm thor. <laughs> <laughs> but that is shocking his own blood yeah i mean like what, smart. That's, that's crazy smart yeah but like so a secret service men know how to like give him a blood transfusion in the middle of a Maybe driving car. Figure it out. Police officers are trained like not only how to like shoot someone or apprehend someone, but how to like birth a baby on the side of the road Mm -hmm. too, right? Yeah. Wow. So I mean, maybe. I mean, wow. Yeah. It's just crazy the contrast between like absolutely zero protection all the way up to like we have vials of your blood in case (laughs) you need a transfusion. We can't get to the hospital in time. Like yeah. Like wow. And there's also a certified doctor that was yeah, writing exactly. with you at all times. Yep. A surgeon. <laughs> Kennedy knew the risk he was taking. That very morning, when agents were pressing him about the lack of protection the motorcade provided, Kennedy said, if somebody wants to shoot me from a window with a rifle, nobody can stop it. So why worry about it? He actually said that the morning of his assassination. Conspiracy, maybe he was in on it. Oh, no. <laughs> we'll get to that later. <laughs> but I want to be clear: I do not believe that. <laughs> Let the record yeah. reflect. That is not what I believe at all. But at just all. throwing it out there. Yeah, it's just another one to I'm add. Adding to the pot. <laughs> it is suspicious. As they were driving through Daly Plaza and seeing the amount of people there to see him, Nellie Connolly, the wife of the Texas governor, turned around to Kennedy, who sat diagonally behind her, and said, Mr. President, you can't say Dallas doesn't love you. Kennedy responded with the last words he would ever speak, no, you certainly can't. As the motorcade turned onto Elm Street, they passed by the Texas School Book Depository. Immediately thereafter, shots rang out. Very few people actually recognized the first shot as a gunshot. There was so much going on that day in Daly Plaza with all the people and commotion that many people thought it was a firecracker or backfiring from one of the vehicles. Other people, though, such as many of the officers on scene and Governor Connolly, who had served in World War II, instantly recognized it as a shot from a rifle. Connolly turned to see the president, but upon realizing that he could not see him, remember he was sitting directly in front of the president, he turned back around, and that's when he was hit in the upper back on the right side. You're shaking your head. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Trust me when I say Kelly is going to get into the conspiracy theories, and we'll be diving into the Warren Commission in greater detail in part two. But as for this episode, we're going to stick to the generally accepted facts as we know them provided by the Warren Commission. According to the Warren Commission, Kennedy was hit by a bullet that entered through his upper back went through his neck where it damaged a spinal vertebra, hit his right lung, and then exited through his throat where it then moved through into Governor Connolly in his right upper back that we mentioned earlier, exited just below his right nipple, and then hit his right wrist where it shattered his right radius. 
This bullet has been called the magic bullet because please explain to me how in the hell one singular bullet was able to do all of that. It's worth noting, though, that although the damages it caused to Kennedy sound horrific, there's evidence that he may have actually lived had he only been hit by this one bullet. The bullet only very slightly damaged his vertebra, and it hit only the tip top of his right lung. But, as you will recall, Kennedy wore a back brace nearly all the time, and this was, unfortunately, one of those times. This brace nearly completely immobilized him. When another fire was shot, this bullet entered Kennedy's head and completely exploded it. If you've seen the unedited Zapruder film, which you can find on YouTube, you will see his brain completely explode. His brain, skin, and skull fragments covered the inside of the car and flew back onto the trunk. Some of his brain matter even hit the security service car following behind them and officers on the motorcycles riding alongside them and behind the motorcade. You were just talking about the empathist in me, and my first thought goes to poor Jackie. To Jackie. Oh, yeah. 100%. Like, oh, I uh, can't. Cannot even fathom. imagine. Especially because um, they they had a very rocky marriage. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And they were kind of, this was after they had lost their son. Mm-hmm. Um, was it the name of Patrick? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, like, kind of soon before this. Mm-hmm. They were kind of in a good place. Yeah. And so just to obviously at any point if your husband dies even if you're angry at him it's awful but like you can see how she must have felt they're so young there's so much I mean that is just and to witness it right there I mean and it's horrible like watching the have you both seen the film film? you've seen it well she grabs his skull like the part of it yes like she grabs it from the top of the car so she's trying to it's just awful and she's like it's awful it's I'm going to make you watch it. I know I want to. I'm going to make you watch it. Um, It's like. I might cry. No, it happens so fast. But it's like horrible me watching Mm -hmm. it. I cannot even possibly, like, even imagine someone you know and love watching. Like, she goes to grab her. She does. Mm -hmm. She does. (sighs) Yeah. Because I mentioned the Zapparuder film, I realize I may need to explain that a bit further for anyone that's not familiar. The Zapruder film is named after a man named Abraham Zapruder, who was a spectator there at the scene the day of the assassination that captured the whole shooting on video camera. While he was not the only person to capture the assassination on camera, there were actually approximately 32 other people that captured the assassination on camera. The Zapruder film is the only one to capture the entire sequence of events and with excellent positioning. The Zapruder film was absolutely integral to the Warren Commission investigation. Like Kelly was just saying, you will see on the film that Jackie Kennedy, immediately following that fatal shot, jumps up and begins to climb out of the back of the motorcade. She later testified that she doesn't remember doing that. It's weird and there's no rationale to it, but but I think, yeah, we can all agree there is no way to rationally react in a situation like that. We would all do crazy, unexplainable shit in an instant like that instant instance like that mm-hmm. <laughs> or instant too or instant yeah, <laughs> yeah. it has been suspected that perhaps she was trying to capture parts of kennedy's skull that had flown off to help basically put him back together which is completely irrational but may have felt rational to her at the time i mean even now thinking about it like that feels rational to me sure like, like, just like the thought if you're in her shoes of, sure like, oh yeah like ah you can like the need to like the you can still fix it yeah you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah 
A Secret Service agent climbed up onto the back of the car, and she returned to her seat where the governor and his wife heard her saying over and over, they've killed my husband. I have his brains in my hand. (sighs) I have goosebumps as I say that. I cannot even imagine. Something little known is that a spectator was actually injured by one of the bullets, too. His name was James Tagg, and he was hit in the right cheek by either a bullet or bullet fragment that bounced off the curb. He only sustained a minor injury and was fortunately okay. Okay. So let's get to the aftermath at Dealey Plaza. Is that how you say it, Dealey? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So unsurprisingly, mass chaos broke out at Dealey Plaza after the shots rang out. Um, I've uploaded an audio clip of a culmination of multiple live news feeds that took place immediately following the shooting, just to give you guys a sense of the level of shock that was going on. Something is wrong here. Something is terribly wrong. There's President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. I like it. I mean, I don't like it, but I like it. Mm Mm-hmm. So while people were running around like crazy, the FBI and the Dallas police were struggling to keep order. Dallas police quickly sealed off the exits from the Texas School Book Depository between 12.33 and 12.50 p.m., so just minutes after the shooting occurred. But people were already scrambling. There were tons of eyewitnesses of the assassination, obviously, since it was during a parade. Yes. But with a large number of witnesses came totally conflicting accounts of what happened. I think we've discussed this in previous episodes, but it's not at all surprising the witnesses have conflicting stories. Research shows that in stressful situations, our short-term memory skyrockets and kicks into overdrive, but our long-term memory suffers. So the longer people wait to give their testimony, the less likely they are to recall an occurrence accurately. Man. Okay, now that that nerdy explanation is out of the way... Most of the following information comes from the Warren Commission hearings of 1964, which are fascinating, by the way. But the commission wasn't instated until November 29, 1963, which means over a week had gone by before they even started conducting these interviews for the commission. So, again, it's understandable that the following witnesses gave what they considered to be truthful yet blatantly conflicting accounts. Yeah. Okay. Here's a few accounts. (laughs) I'm going to go through a few. Howard Brennan, a steam fitter who was sitting across the street from the Texas School Book Depository, notified police that he was watching the motorcade go by when he heard a single shot that came from above and looked up to see a man with a rifle take a second shot from a corner window on the sixth floor. He said he had seen the same man looking out a window minutes earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Scratching my chin. Mm -hmm. S.M. Holland, who had been watching the motorcade on the triple underpass nearby, testified that immediately after the shots were fired, he saw a puff of smoke rising from the trees right by the stockade fence. Rachel's like, she's getting heated. (laughs) 
Um, and then he ran around the corner where the overpass joined the fence, but he did not see anyone running from that area. At the time of the shooting, Lee Bowers, a railroad switchman who was sitting in a nearby two-story tower, claimed he saw, quote, something out of the ordinary, a sort of milling around, end quote, on the grass. <laughs> Bowers testified that two men were still there when motorcycle officer Clyde Haygood ran up the grassy knoll to the back of the fence. Good old grassy knoll. Mm-hmm. You'll hear that a lot. <laughs> Harold Norman and James Jarman Jr., Jingle Hammer Schmidt. Anyways, Harold and James, two employees of the Texas School Book <laughs> Depository, who had um, watched the motorcade from windows at the southeast corner of the building's fifth floor, reported that they heard three gunshots come from directly over their heads mm. from what sounded like a bolt action rifle and heard cartridges cartridges dropping on the floor above them interesting Mm -hmm. so a ton of conflicting accounts which of course eventually will lead to dun 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 conspiracy theories (laughs) (laughs) but we'll get to that later um, according to Dealey Plaza Ear Witnesses by John <laughs> McAdams, there were at least 104 ear witnesses, and I hate that they call them ear witnesses. I didn't know that was a thing. In Dealey Plaza, <laughs> with varying opinions on where the shots came from. Roughly 50... Pre- 50 pew. <laughs> 50 pew. It's hard. I don't like being on this side of things. Roughly 52% thought that all shots came from the Texas School Book Depository building. Okay. Roughly 32 thought that they came from either the Grassy Knoll or the Triple Underpass. Uh-huh. Close to nine thought that each shot came from a location entirely distinct from the Knoll or the Depository. Nearly 5% believed that they heard shots from... Two locations. Yeah. 3% thought that the shots originated from a direction consistent with both the knoll and the depository. The Warren Commission eventually concluded that three shots total, 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 (laughs) total were fired and stated that a substantial majority of the witnesses stated that the shots were not evenly spaced. Most witnesses recalled that the second and third shots were bunched together. I love that we're getting to my favorite part of this whole thing, but that's not until episode two. So there's obviously so much more to talk about, which we will dive into in the second part of this episode coming out next week. As always, we will post pictures from this episode on Instagram the day that this episode is released. If you enjoyed the episode, do us a favor and subscribe to Hashtag History on whatever podcast platform you use. Share it with a friend and give us a rate and review. And be sure to check us out on Instagram at Hashtag History underscore podcast. Also, I just realized that this episode will come out on Christmas Eve. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Kelly, does the shop do anything special for the holiday? Um, well, actually, this year, I'm going to Africa, so we'll be close to two weeks. So cool. Yeah. So, um, so that's a no, guys. Yeah, no. <laughs> you can't come to Don't come until January 8th. It's going to reopen. Um, but yeah. 
That's awesome. Well, Merry Christmas, you guys. Stick around for next week's episode where we will conclude the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.